The case of Galloway's Ringcroft poltergeist is one of the earliest enduring ghost stories to have emerged out of Scotland. The incidents of this haunting were recorded in an explicit and highly detailed eyewitness account left by local minister Alexander Telfair, who served the parish of Rerick. The events took place over a period of nine weeks and terrorised the area, with locals talking about witchcraft, devils, the undead and all the evils of hell rising up and inflicting pain on the families of the area. Not much now remains of the site where this famous case took place, with just a single skeletal tree marking the location of the Ring Plantation. But how true was the account of what happened? And if it was true, then this must be the most detailed account of a poltergeist episode we have from such an early time in history. Let's check out what happened in this episode of the True Hauntings podcast. Hi, my name's Renata. And I'm Anne. And today we head to Scotland to look at the Ringcroft poltergeist. How exciting. Anne and Renata have been investigating paranormal occurrences for the past 20 years. They have been at the center of various unexplained phenomena and have witnessed countless ghostly experiences. The duo now turn to high-profile cases that have attracted the eyes of the world. Between the dimensions we see and the dimensions we don't, supernatural forces are at play. Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow, forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings. So this took place in 1695, around yes. the time of your birth. That's, no, <laughs> just a little. I'd already been around for 100 years. Oh, there you go. She's learning how to do it now. <laughs> so let's, let's get on to the story. During his visit to the Mackey house, the minister did not notice much untoward. However, a couple of stones struck him as he was leaving, but then seemed to calm down. The following Sunday, a veritable shower of stones rained down on him and the family. Not to be dissuaded, the minister arrived again the next week to lead prayers and was hit by both stones and by some invisible object like a great stick that fairly whacked him about his shoulders. There was also loud rappings and knockings, and both the minister and the other witnesses began to see apparitions of human figures or body parts, such as a little white hand and arm from the elbow down. Things got even worse in the days following. The landlord and some neighbours tried to enter the house and were beaten by an unseen force with sticks and struck by stones so fiercely that they had to retreat. Others were dragged around the house by their clothes while bedclothes were pulled off the sleeping children who were also mysteriously beaten on their hips Bits of furniture were lifted and moved. The beds and chests shook and trembled and stones continued to rain down. A voice was heard saying, Wished! Wished! 
which set the dog barking. When a group of local ministers arrived to drive out the trouble, as it was now being called, they only seemed to aggravate matters. Rocks weighing up to eight pounds were launched at them. One minister was cut severely on his head and had his wig pulled off him. Fires were started spontaneously in the yard outside. The Mackies were in despair. Mrs Mackie noticed a loose slab outside the door. She lifted it and found seven small bones with blood and some flesh, all closed in a piece of subtled paper. Very frightened, she ran for the landlord. While she was away, the stone throwing renewed with greater intensity and fireballs landed in the house. The children's bedclothes were set alight and the bed shaken, accompanied by loud groaning. It was not until the bones found by Mrs Mackey were removed and sent to the minister that things subsided again. Some died by the wayside, one witness remembered, and some dropped down in the streets. During the 1690s, a perfect storm of grain shortages, terrible weather and economic crisis across Europe gave rise to seven years of famine and mass emigration from Scotland. Temperatures plummeted around the globe and Scotland's staple crop of oatmeal was destroyed for almost a decade, starting in 1693. Facing starvation, Scots ate grass and rotting meat, whatever they could get their hands on to survive. Many were tenant farmers on large estates unable to pay their rents. Eviction prompted some 200,000 to leave their homes, wandering the countryside in search of food. Others emigrated to England, Ireland and North America looking for work. By the century's end, starvation had killed upwards of 15% of the population. Though harvests improved in the 1700s, the seven ill years is remembered as Scotland's last great famine. Now, that comes from Ancestry.com Historical Insights. And one of the things that I wanted to look at with regard to this story was the backstory of what was happening in Scotland at the time mm -hmm. because I thought that that would have played into some of the information that mm -hmm. comes through. So even though we have a story where we have an eyewitness or several eyewitness accounts of what actually happened, I think that a lot of bias actually sat within the story you reckon? <laughs> I'm just reckoning. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, what was life like in the 1600s in Scotland? Mm. And we've worked out that it was pretty awful. Pretty tough. And this seven ill years was a period of national famine uh, in Scotland uh, in, the in the 1690s. So it resulted from extreme cold weather. There was also an economic slump that was created by French protectionism and also changes in the Scottish cattle trade. 
There were also four years of failed harvests, so 1695 to 1699. And this severe famine occurred at the time when Scotland had the coldest decade in 750 years. So this is kind of the underlying thing. And and also what we were hearing was this eviction process of people on these large plots of land that were working for um, the owners of the land here. So all of this is really, really important because we're talking about the Ringcroft Plantation. Right. So the family that we are talking about is probably one of these families that lived on a large property Mm -hmm. and their survival depended on what went on in that property or on that property and whether the the landowner um, was actually surviving. Yeah. Or whether he had to get rid of families that were there in some way, shape, or yeah, form. Yeah, because it does mention that um, the, the family, there was children, mm-hmm. and they have the landlord is all involved in this story. Yep, absolutely. Which we will get to. Now, that's one bit of, of it. So famine, death, freezing cold, and mm-hmm. look, at any given time of the year, it's always cold in Scotland. Yeah. So you can imagine how freezing cold it would be. You'd be happy there. You'd just be wearing T-shirt and shorts. <laughs> In the middle of winter. I would. (laughs) Then on top of that, we have the witch hunts that were in Scotland. And Dumfries and Galloway, where this is situated, this Mm -hmm. story, was one of the last regions to initiate witch prosecutions. Mm -hmm. So they were actually still having some witch trials and some issues at the end of the 1600s and into the early 1700s. So they're still trying to weed out paganism there. Around the time that all of this was happening. Mm. Yeah. From another article that I read, it says here that in the late 17th and 18th centuries, southwest Scotland, better known for the persecution of covenanters, took the practice of witchcraft and charming very seriously and perhaps for longer periods of time than any other places in Scotland. Um, accusations of witchcraft in this region were mostly concerned with the troubles of everyday life, agricultural problems, family tensions and disagreements between neighbours. Now, does that fit right into this story? Yes. Absolutely. So from 1670 to 1740, the very decades that were giving birth to the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, learned interest in the supernatural was actually on the increase and the topic received an unprecedented level of questioning, investigation and scrutiny. So there was still a lot of superstition, but the church and the state really wanted to weed that out. Mm-hmm. So if they could find any situations where they could point a finger at and make it a real cause mm-hmm. for everyone to go, Satan did it. That's wrong. Oh. Then they were very much winning. So I thought that was really just uh, important to add those bits in because that, like I said, gives us a real backstory to what's happening in Scotland in um, the late 1600s. Interestingly enough, I also read as I was doing some research about some of the priests or ministers that were in the area Mm -hmm. and how they had been of one type of belief and then they kind of swapped. Oh. To survive. Oh. Mm. Okay. And this seems to be something that had occurred to our reverend that we mentioned here Mm -hmm. in this particular story. 
Um, I think he was Episcopalian and then he turned Protestant. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. So, yes, there was all about this social status, trying to um, yeah, do what the state was asking uh, over these po- the poorest of the poor people, yeah. those yeah. that were literally, like they said, they were eating grass and rotten meat to survive. Yeah. And they were the people that all of this horrible stuff was, you know, being done to, which is so unfair. Yeah. Now the source of all of this, which is your what you're going to go on to and, and how all of this mm-hmm. started to happen, comes from a book, a pamphlet. Oh, it's a, a pamphlet with such a little tiny name. It's very easy yes, to remember. Yes, So the sources are from the Reverend Telfair and his pamphlet was entitled A True, La- a true <laughs> Relation of an Apparition. Expressions and actings of a spirit which infested the house of Andrew Mackey in Ringcroft of Stocking in the parish of Rerick in the stewartry of Kirkudbright in Scotland. And it goes back. That's the title of the book. Yeah, that's the title of the book. (laughs) Holy moly. (laughs) Uh, And it was completed in December 1695, less than eight months after the events. I can't hear anything else you said after that title. My brain is still ringing from it. The thing <laughs> is also, uh, and look, I, I want to say it was printed in Edinburgh and uh, it was so loved that they actually reprinted it, two more editions, and then the third was printed in London. Uh, and the full account also appears in several books and you can find it on Google if you look hard enough. In oldie English. In oldie English. Old, old, oldie Scottish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, as I said, it was written eight months after or completed eight months after. So I'm, I'm hoping that what was going on was that the Reverend actually was making notes daily. Yeah, because otherwise what was occurring. you're remembering it from a long time ago. Mm, yeah. Eight months is a long time to have a sharp memory about the details of what was happening. That's exactly Particularly right. since it's sort of done almost like day by day and the changes, it's almost like a diary. Yeah, yeah. Now I'll just read this a little bit too before you um, go on and actually talk about what happened. Um, and this is part of the information that um, we looked at and uh, I got from a really interesting book um, called Poltergeist Over Scotland by Jeff Holder. And there was also the Academia. Is that the website? Academia. Yeah, yep. there was some great information on there too. Yep. So it says the glorious revolution of 1689 had finally secured the established church in Scotland as Presbyterian in nature. After decades in which first one Protestant ideology held sway, then another, the nature of official religious worship for Scots was now fixed. This had huge consequences on individual clergy, which is what I was talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. How, about the Reverend Telfair. Uh, he was Episcopalian and after the revolution, having like so many others changed his spots, he was a Presbyterian minister, right. not a Protestant. I was wrong. Presbyterian. Oh, another P word. Mm-hmm. There's a few there. Don't get them confused, will you? So at Rerick, Telfair would have been conscious that he had to toe the line of 
of orthodoxy. The farm buildings were 28 years old and had been home to several tenants in that time. And Andrew Mackey had a number of children, the youngest of which was nine or 10. We are told that the father was a respectable, well-liked and pious man. So there was really no thought that this family had made stuff up uh, or that there was any reason to make stuff up. Right. Yeah, but let's let's get on with the story because this is fascinating. It is. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Maybe take a nap, read a book, or just show up for a friend. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However, there are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com P60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's better. Help, H E L P dot com slash P sixty. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on, and if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp dot com slash P sixty. There's a link for it on today's program guide. What I'm going to do is look at the haunting first, so people get an idea of what was happening. I feel so sorry for this family. It mm-hmm. would have been horrendous. And I just, I, would, I want to end up with a, a little bit of interpretation of interpretive of, dance, of, interpretive of song. What no? Telfair kind of had behind this story. Oh, maybe but, I've got that. Oh, maybe you have. Maybe. Maybe you have. Anyway. Maybe I did my own research okay. too. All right, Look, I go. have to say. Go, go, go. I've got a whole library of books here, um, like a lot of books, and I went through all of the ones that could possibly have information about the Ringcroft poltergeist and found one book mm-hmm. that had ten lines. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Um, yeah, so it's not that well known, but mm. my God, it's a good story. Mm-hmm. Okay, February. We're going back to February 1695. Now, Mackie came out to discover that his cattle had broken their tethers overnight. So, I mean, that's not not a big thing. So we went out and retied them the next night with stronger bonds. But guess what? They they broke out again. Oh, no. They got out. The cows got out. Well, that's not terribly paranormal, is it? All right, so after that, they found a pile of peat. Now, mm-hmm. peat is, my husband would say, to do with scotch, but it's um, the, this bog. And they found this peat laid up in front of their uh, fireplace inside the house. 
and somebody had set it alight. Luckily, the family did find it before it burnt the house down, but nobody knows how that peat got there. Mm-hmm. And they used to burn peat. Mm-hmm. And it gives it that nice woody, smoky sort of feel to your scotch. Mm. <laughs> it, it burns really slowly. Yeah. But I also have to say that dried peat is highly combustible. So if it was near a fire, then it may have caught from a spark. But who stacked it there? Uh-huh. Well, anyway. Now we're going to go into March where the stones start getting thrown at the house. And isn't this interesting that we the, hear stone throwing? Yeah, what is all it with the time? with stone throwing? Interesting. So uh, nobody could tell where it was coming from, but it was both inside and outside of the house in every single room. And the people inside were getting bombarded with these stones. Um, So they had the uh, activity happening all the time from the 7th of March until the end of April. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few days after all of this had started off, uh, the children came in and they saw what they thought was a really strange-looking man sitting by the fire. Mm. So they've sort of gone, "Uh, hey, you, who, who are you? He didn't move or say a word. So one of the girls crept forward and sort of going, excuse me, sir, who are you? And then when they got there, they realised it wasn't a person at all. It was a stool that had been turned upside down with a blanket placed over it to look like it was a person. But they don't know who did it. Mm. It's really weird. Brave young girl, though, can mm-hmm. I just say? Go the girls. Right, the other things like their kitchen k- kitchen implements, including pots and pans, went missing, and they would quite often find them in really weird places, like up in the loft. Mm-hmm. So that's another poltergeist thing mm-hmm. where things go missing and appear somewhere else, also known as jot, just mm-hmm. one of those things. And the stone drawing seemed to get worse on Sundays when, of course, they were doing their prayer. Mm. And whoever was leading the prayer seemed to be the target of the stone throwing more than anyone else. So this is the demonic side oh, kind of. yes, because they're saying prayers, aren't they? they and are. it's, it's them getting targeted. Mm-hmm. But don't we, have we had that happen before? We have in the Humpty Doo poltergeist when they were saying prayers and remember the the book was trying to get torn out of their hands mm-hmm. and and things like that. So anyway, now let's go to the 10th of April and they started to refer to it now as the trouble. Now this is when the minister reports that the the house was being almost shaken to its foundations. Uh, let me read what it says. The trouble came often with such force upon the house that it made all the house shake. It break a hole through the timber and thatch of the house and poured in great stones, one whereof more than a quarter weight fell upon Mr. James. Monteith, his back, yet he was not hurt, it threw another with great force at him when he was praying bigger than a man's fist, which hit him on the breast, yet he was neither hurt nor moved thereby. It gripped and handled the legs of some as with a man's hand, 
It hoisted up the feet of others while standing on the ground. Thus it did to William Lennox of Millhouse, myself and others. In this manner it continued till 10 o'clock at night. How terrifying. Mm. So it's not just the family who are witnessing this now. We've got um, these other people who are coming over to witness what's happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I found a, a thing here where it said that the witnesses were four other ministers, nine adult men, um, all subscribed their names to the accounts, swearing the truth of the details. There were also women and children, but they didn't matter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Up yours. <laughs> so th- these would have been the other workers that worked on the property. Yeah, yeah. So in mid-April, the Mackies moved out. I don't blame them. And some neighbours just looked after the place. And after they left, the disturbances died. Sorry, the disturbances died down. <laughs> they didn't die. <laughs> so what happens? The Mackies come back. Hmm. Guess what happened? Oh, starts all over again. Yeah, so I wish I knew what the ages were of the children. That'd be really interesting. Hmm. Well, you've got about nine or ten children. Um, they would have probably been one after the other, yeah. more or less. Six months, 18 months. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you you probably had one that one or two that may have been in their teenage years, depending on yeah how old these people were. And, again, during this time, people really didn't live that long. Mm. Like they, they kind of say that in many cases uh, it, your lifespan was to about the age of 35. Wow. Um, there were people that lived longer. We'd be walking miracles, <laughs> especially you. I, I know, right? <laughs> um, but in most cases they, they would have died um, pretty early on and there was a big amount of death um, in the teenage years. Mm. Yeah, they were put to work early. Mm. And uh, teenagers still have those hormones running rife and Mm. don't act sensibly and there's no such thing as occupational health and safety. No, that's true. Anyway, let's get on with this. Now, uh, once the family moved back in, the disturbances started up again and when someone was struck, they could hear a voice that was saying, take you that. So that is uh, in my soundscape. They were saying, like, wished, wished, which must mean take you that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fire raising and stone throwing continued and mud was thrown at those in prayer. (laughs) Voice. There you go. Uh, They eventually ended up having a voice that started to converse with the father. It seemed to be the voice of a spirit and said it would be troubled for a further four days. So they're saying that the family only has to put up with this for another four days. Mm -hmm. Hmm. There was another poltergeist that uh, said they were going to stop doing what they were doing in a, a time period as well, if I remember correctly. can't remember what that one was. So many poltergeists are <laughs> out of the can't remember now. But what we're also seeing is this same type of story, this same scenario over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when Mackie asked who had sent the spirit, it replied that God had sent it to warn the land to repent. For a judgment is to come if the land do not quickly repent and I will return a hundred times worse upon every family in the land. 
So now they've, they've got all this seven years of horror going on and now they've got somebody going, if you don't do it my way, it's going to be even worse. And they're saying God did it. But and, and, of course, they've just had this religious change as well. Oh, yes. So um, which side is God on? <laughs> yes, which God? <laughs> God are we talking about? But then the voice also said that if Mackie prayed to it and worshipped it, it would trouble him no more. Oh, we had a temptation. Oh, but Mackie, being the solid man that he was, recognised the tempting voice of the devil and refused. Glad he knows what the devil's voice sounds like. Mm. wonder how long the devil's been talking to him that he knows what his voice sounds like. <clears throat> Sorry, I digress. The next day, after he refused the devil, the house was fired seven times. So there was seven lots of fires. Mm-hmm. And family and neighbours slaved all day to extinguish the flames. Finally, on the 30th of April, the landlord led prayers in the buyer. The spirit had been promising that their troubles would be over soon. As they gathered, people prayed. They saw a black thing in the corner, which grew slowly like a cloud until it filled the whole room and from which chaff and mud was flung at them. It seemed to be able to grip some of them around their waists and arms, making them cry out in pain and leaving marks on them that would last for days. But then the cloud dispersed and all went quiet. The next day, a small building that we used to keep the sheep in was set on fire and burnt to the ground. But this seemed to be the last act of the trouble. As promised, it finished in those four days. Thereafter, the Mackies lived in on lived on in peace. The whole incident, which was described in Telfer's book, and this is where we are getting our information from, because I believe it is the only account mm-hmm. of what happened. Mm-hmm. So we have to trust mm-hmm. that this person is giving us an honest account. Mm-hmm. And as they say in many of the copies and many of the areas that you look at this book, there was no reason to think that a priest would be telling a lie. Please don't lie. (laughs) So it was just... Just don't look at St. Joseph's The Junction. (laughs) Merriweather. Don't. There was no reason to not believe him. Yes. Now, um, I have some possible explanations as to why this has happened to this particular family. So um, going back to when it all started... Uh, Mackie, when it started to happen, approached his priest, which was Mr. Telfer, um, and he came to visit a day or two later, and they discussed the possible causes of what was making this happen. Mm -hmm. I love this story. This is a great story. Apparently, uh, a few years before they lived there, the house was inhabited by a family called McNaught. Mm -hmm. Uh, The householder McNaught had a run of bad luck, including poor cropped yields, and ill health. Now, this must be the seven years of, mm-hmm. of horror that mm-hmm. they had. Nothing to do with that, obviously. Oh, it no, was no, bad no. luck. It was bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, he was starting to worry that the house might be cur- cursed. This mm-hmm. is McNaught. Mm-hmm. And sent his son off to visit a woman who was known for her psychic ability to see past, present, future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that was a bit of a no-no, but, you know, they, they wanted to get the insight. The son went to the woman, but on his way home, ran into a recruiting party. Woohoo, party? No, wrong sort of party. 
<laughs> he was enlisted and pressed into joining the army. So he didn't even make it home. He was basically shanghaied into the army. Oh, my gosh. And was sent to Flanders. So there he met another young man from his parish who was about to go home and leave. So he got the information he'd been given by the psychic and said to him, please go to my dad and tell him this is what the psychic said Mm -hmm. and what needs to be done. And by the way, tell him that I'm at war. Oh, yeah, and tell them, by the way, I've been shanghaied and taken to Flanders. <laughs> that, how horrible. <sighs> so the, the, the man's name was John Reddick, and he was quite happy to pass on the message. Mm-hmm. So the message was, there was a stone slab at the entrance to the house which must be lifted. Underneath it, he would find a tooth. He must burn this. If he did not, his ill luck would continue. So... Reddick took that message home to the McNaught family, but sadly McNaught's luck had run out and he had actually died. So he didn't think it was any point in telling the new tenant, a man called Thomas Telfer, Interesting because Alexander Uh, Telfer didn't tell them about it, and he went to the minister, Alexander Telfer, and confided in him. Oh, see, now, now it's getting... It's getting a little convoluted. Yeah. Uh, so it... apparently the minister knew about what this wise woman had said about finding these things underneath there, but hadn't told them. So the minister decided to do and say nothing, but Reddick must have afterwards told someone else because word did get around Mm -hmm. and uh, Thomas Telfer lifted the stone slab and found something below it, either a bit of tooth or bone, which he burnt. He never had any problems in the house, but when he moved out, Mackie moved in, the problem certainly arose. So I'm confused because there is the report that says that Thomas Telfer lifted the stone and removed those items. But then we go back into the story that was in the book, which says the mother lifted the stone, had an inkling and found much more than that. Now, let me tell you what was underneath the stone according to the mother. Don't we also hear from myth, legend and um, like, pagan beliefs, that they would put things under the hearthstones yes. and um, at the front doors and at the back protection gates and as protection. Yes, 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 yes. So going back to what the mother found, right, she found seven small bones with blood and some flesh all closed in a piece of old subtled paper. But there is another report as well that said Mackie um, allegedly had taken an oath to dedicate his first child to the devil, as you do. <laughs> Uh, and they found in the house clothes belonging to a woman of ill repute and that he refused to burn a tooth they found buried under the threshold, which the previous tenant supposedly had burned. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and, yeah, so as you were saying, that some of these things are things that you would place to protect your, your yes. house in, in pagan sort of yeah. protection. Um so I'm really confused as to who burnt the tooth, who found what. But isn't that interesting? And also, 
a woman of ill repute. How do they know the clothes were of a woman of ill repute? Was well, maybe it's just the missus's dress up clothes oh. on a Saturday night for a bit of special action? I have no idea. <laughs> Look, there's more, and this 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 is a big story that I also found um, when looking for information on Ockencairn, mm-hmm. which is this this space, and this is a story that they kind of tell as part of the mythology of the place because. Um, I don't think there's much else that happened up there. So this is <laughs> apart from having children. So this is their one big story. So it does it grows. But go ahead, keep going. All right. So um there was a book in 1940 that wanted to give a description of what had gone down in 1690. Now I think this is rather arrogant. Mm-hmm. To then, it'd be like us turning around and making a declaration on this story, which mm-hmm. we might do at the end. I don't mm-hmm. know. We'll find out. <laughs> but um, this is oh god, how do we even say that? Sash Sasha Varel Sitwell um, claimed in his 1940 book called Poltergeist that the guilty party was one of the Mackey's kids who had learned the art of ventriloquism. <laughs> yeah, yes, I dread that. You of go, of course. Okay. In the, the 1690s, somebody's learnt how to throw their voice and um, Sitwell concluded there can be no doubt that one of the children had learnt to ventriloquise, but just how this prodigy of a child managed to chuck rocks about using voice control, who knows? <laughs> Didn't we hear the same thing with the Gyra ghost and Millie? Yeah, they've got to blame the kids. I mean, it could be. And sometimes children will take what's happening around them and reenact it as part of a way of, I suppose, trying to understand themselves what's happening. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they're faking it. It just, yeah, poor old what's-he-face threw rocks on the roof and then everyone said, oh, well, there you go, she's faked it. You've also got to understand that these are kids of a very poor family out in the middle of nowhere. How would they even understand that such a thing actually exists? It's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Mm. Now, there's also... uh, Various attempts to exercise, exorcise, not mm-hmm. exercise. <laughs> Nobody likes to exercise. No, no. Um, the ghost of the, or whatever it was that you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, every time they tried to do this, they were hit with flying stones and clods of earth. Now, remember, there's been many poltergeists, but mm-hmm. they've tried to exorcise mm-hmm. the, the spirit and all they do is throw things at them, almost like they're laughing at them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, whatever it is, is not worried about religion. Mm-hmm. So that, that, yeah. But of course, according to Telfair's pamphlet, he had a different version of what happened. Uh, he and the four ministers, so he claimed, said prayers at the farm at which made the trouble cease. Mm-hmm. They solved the problem. Of course they did. Um, yeah, no, it wasn't. The poltergeist said it was going after four days, and it did. They were just throwing rocks at them in the meantime. Uh, now, what was the other one of the other things? Oh, there was a uh, eighteen ninety edition of the Saturday Review, um, and they denounced Telfair's pamphlet, uh, and they said it's sort of a, sort of a mix of ob- obvious naked imposture and folklore, uh, and that it was merely a practical joke. Other, they also said that it is an argument against atheism. Mm-hmm. So that's where they're trying to hit the pagans or people who didn't believe in God and putting the fear of God into them mm-hmm. to bring them to the church. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I actually like that theory that this was written for the poor simple folk who only knew their 
uh, pagan faith mm-hmm. and superstitions and wise women. Mm-hmm. And God help the wise women because you can't have wise women. And this has almost been written to scare people into compliance. How easy would it be to say to uh, some townsfolk, I need you to support me in this because these godless people, we need to bring them to the church. Will you support me in this story and mm. God's work? Very easily, especially as right at the very beginning we were mentioning the witchcraft trials mm-hmm. and that witchcraft was always something that was blamed uh, on if crops failed or the weather was bad or whatever. So, I mean, he could have said that if we do not pray to our God, if we do not do the right thing, we will suffer more years of this disgusting weather and of famine. Uh, So come with me. We will change the way people think in our area and save everyone. Yes, and don't forget also that um, they were supposedly sent by God and you've got to repent or it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, unless you worship me, I don't know who threw that in. (laughs) That's a bit of a worry. Um, So do you have any other juicy bits to add into this one, Renata? Um, Only a a few bits of information that Telfair used uh, when he was looking at um, writing this pamphlet and some of the quotes that he had. So he says, um, it says here, and this goes back to the Poltergeist book uh, that I mentioned before that we'll put in the show notes Mm -hmm. uh, on our Facebook page, and it says, Telfair makes it clear that the spirit he encountered was demonic in nature. His pamphlet starts with three quotes Put on the whole armour of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And resist the devil and he will flee from you. So in his introduction, Telfair tells us that he hopes the pamphlet will be proof against the sceptical spirit of the age, which regards descriptions of good and evil spirits as merely the ramblings of disordered minds. He also wants it to act as a warning in praise of orthodox piety to induce all persons, particularly masters of families, to private and family prayer lest the neglect of it provoke the Lord not only to pour out his wrath upon them otherwise, but to let Satan loose to haunt their persons and families with audible voices, apparitions, and hurt to their persons and goods. So it really was a document to terrorise people into turning to the church. Mm -hmm. He's said that right there in Mm -hmm. a lot of very fancy words. Absolutely. He goes on to say that uh, Mackie had dedicated his eldest child to the devil on account of him having undertaken the dread oath known as the Mason's Word. Oh, okay. We have to find that. Oh, I have to find that Mm -hmm. one. The second was that the Mackies had wrongly kept for themselves some clothes left behind in the house by a woman suspected of witchcraft. Oh, now now they've called her a woman of ill repute, which sounds more like a... Um, a prostitute. And they said that they found the clothes. I think they said in the house. In the house, okay. Um, and the third claimed that the previous tenant of the farm uh, was a man named McNaught who had suffered ill fortune because a cursed tooth had been planted beneath the threshold. Um, 
And this is the same place where Miss, Mrs. Mackey found the bag of bones and flesh. Hiding items at the See, threshold was a standard practice of malign folk magic. Yeah, so flesh, was it a, a piece of old rotten lamb chop or something? Or I mean, how would you know that? How long has it been there? Yeah. Uh, to me, to recognise it as flesh sounds to me like it might have been fairly recent and it could have been them. Mm. Could have been them and they're just going to blame it on someone else. Now... Witchcraft was clearly thought to be a possible catalyst for the events, so we go back to this connection, mm-hmm. the witchcraft trials. Obviously, they hadn't let go. They hadn't let go of that. No, they <laughs> had to weed out, the, weed out a few more. Let me tell you, they didn't succeed because they're still around today. And as for the satanic interpretation, in some respects the voice was similar in tone to that in Glen Luca, but unlike that case, at no point did Rerick spirit claimed to be a demon. So Glenluca was another place. Oh, okay. in, in that same period in Scotland, mm-hmm. there were a lot of other cases that were coming up in those rural areas of demonic things occurring. So when you look at the history of different cases, you're still getting a lot of demonic and satanic mm instances around that late 1600s, 1700s. Makes you wonder if there was a, um, uh, a email sent out to everyone saying we need to build our flock, we want you to do this to bring people in. Now, of mm. course, I can't say that's what happened. 1690 is too long ago for me to remember what was going down there. So it is all mm. up in the air, this one. Now, the author here also says misperception could have played a role and the apparitions in particular could have been imagined and invented. We can easily imagine that an opportunistic neighbour with a grudge took advantage of the situation to plant the bag of bones and you missed out. There was a letter written in blood. Oh, I didn't see that one. Yes, yes. Mm. Wow. So now we've also adding into the mix that it could be a disgruntled neighbour. Yeah, yeah. Was there some kind of neighbourhood vendetta in the background? Did someone else covet the tenancy of the farm and hope to drive the Mackies out? Mm. Telfer gives no hint about such matters. So if... So that makes you wonder if the family was not too badly off as well because, you know, they talk about having sheep. They've got the the sheep shed. They've got the house. They've got the place where they keep their hay. So it sounded like they they were actually not doing too bad wherever they were. Mm. Well, obviously someone didn't want them there. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned the family having been associated with the house prior to Happening the Mackies coming in. Happens to have the same last name as, oh, that's a little bit suspect, isn't it? It's really, really, like I said, the the only point here that kind of really sticks for me as being a just a horrible thing to think about is that you've got a stack of other people and um, many of the ministers, which is a hint, mm-hmm. who have said that this document is absolute truth. Yes. So the people have to believe it. Yes. So what do you think? Do you think it's a real true haunting or oh, not? Oh, God, 1600s. Um, Can you remember back then? I'm trying to. <laughs> Let me go back for a minute. <laughs> she can't back in the mind palace. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been down that corridor for a while. Let's clear um, out the cobwebs. I think this is a, a really amazing story mm-hmm. and I find that the 
crossing over to many of the poltergeist instances that we have now is just so clearly evident of being exactly the same. So have people used this as... A template? A template for poltergeists? <laughs> is that what it is? That's weird. That's even weird to say. I know. But everything that we've... Stone throwing, yep. things going missing, yep. fires breaking out, yep. Yep. Um, people being hit by unseen forces. Yep. One of the kids being the ventriloquist <laughs> and <laughs> throwing their voices. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, but like in 400 years, we've not progressed. <laughs> we haven't come up with a new story no. unless you look at the Conjuring series. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've been quite creative. All right. Well, um, I'm I'm going to say um, I no? I can't. I I have to say no. Mm-hmm. I I. But it's just bizarre. It's a fascinating story. It is a fascinating story. I just there's too many characters in play there that have their own personal reason for wanting that family to be out or to bring people to the to, to the church. So yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Look, we hope but you've it, enjoyed it. Uh, we've thought that this is fascinating considering that we've got a story from the 1600s um, and there are so many parallels to nowadays. Yeah. So thank you for joining us for this episode of True Hauntings. If you have liked it, please subscribe and head over to our Facebook community as well. We've got our True Hauntings Facebook uh, Facebook page and we'll put all our resources up there so you can follow up further if you want to uh, look at where we've got our information from. Uh, and in the meantime, stay safe, everyone. Keep that Miss Rona away from you and uh, we will stay safe too. And don't forget to join us for Spooky Sundays mm-hmm. as well on Newcastle Live Radio. In the meantime, see you on the dark side. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of True Hauntings. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube.